Good morning. So that song, once again, lovely, absolutely lovely. And what our theme for the talk this morning is exactly that, that we are one. And it occurred to me as I was listening to these voices and as I was observing this banner, this art behind us, looking at the faces of everyone, that we are, humanity is a tapestry. It's a beautiful, beautiful tapestry. And... To the extent that we get attached to our piece of the tapestry, to our thread, we miss the beauty of the whole thing. And that includes religion, and it includes spirituality, and those are not the same thing. So I begin with a story. It's not a joke. I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about blind guys crawling around looking at feeling up an elephant, but... Um, I mean, feeling an elephant. Oh. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean. So, this story is told in several different faith traditions, among them Hindu, uh, Buddhism, and Jain, which I might not be pronouncing properly, J-A-I-N, which is a form of Hinduism that deals with nonviolence, the belief that everything has a soul. And this story is about some blind men who stumble across an elephant. I don't know if they mean literally or figuratively, but they're stumbling across an elephant, and they decide to define exactly what it is. And so one by one, they feel different aspects of the elephant, and one man feels its trunk and decides that the elephant is solid and wide. And another feels its tail and describes it as thin and spindly. And then a third pats the elephant's ears and says that an elephant is flat and floppy. A fourth touches its side and decides the elephant must be a somewhat nondescript, rough-textured-looking being, and so on. Each man knows one aspect of the elephant, but none knows the whole thing. And I was saying this morning, on the way to the center this morning, I came on Lombard, and there's this big billboard um, for the zoo. And it shows just part of an animal. It looks like it might be an anteater or something, but I don't know because the whole thing isn't there. And the, it reads, um, come see what you're missing. And I thought that was pretty cool because it's the same kind of thing. Um, you can only see one part of it. And then to make a decision and a worldview based on one part of it um, can be pretty interesting. And I think perhaps that we do that uh, maybe more often than, than we would like. So this, is, this morning is about finding what unites us and raising the hidden knowledge of unity. And we are using this book, The Mystic Heart. And in a nutshell, so far, this book speaks to the idea that there is only one of us expressing as the many of us, and that we express that as our own individual spirituality and as religions that we participate in, that we have much in common, there is much in common in most of the faith traditions, and we can meet there. And he takes it a step further and says that the differences can be even more enriching. Because when we meet there, we open up a whole new possibility to all of us. 
to expand our own awareness, our own consciousness, and our own practice. So essentially, that is so far what he is speaking to, and he uses some history and some world events, some of what is going on now related to that, to do that. And the introduction, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her name, it's Dr. Beatrice, that's what I'm calling her. And she says, in part, fortunately, everyone is a mystic. At some deep level, we know that we are not mutually alienated from each other. Most of us have not raised that knowing to our explicit consciousness enough to transform life. When that knowledge does percolate up through the layers of our perceptions and behaviors, then our motives, our feelings, our actions turn from what might be withdrawal, suspicion, rejection, hostility, domination, to openness, trust, inclusion, nurturance, and communion. And I love this line because of the implications of it. The practice of raising this knowledge is the process of becoming a mystic in experience. She doesn't say the practice of creating this knowledge. She doesn't say the practice of uh, building this knowledge. She is talking about a knowledge that already exists within each and every one of us. So once again, this is not something we have to invent. This is something that is the truth of us. What we need do is uncover it. Take the stuff off it. Um, reveal it. And I went online to see different definitions of the term mystic, and the one I liked best, and therefore the one I'm using, is from the online site Answer Bag, mostly because I like the term answer bag. <laughs> A mystic is someone who is spiritually aware, though not necessarily religious in a religious sense. A mystic is absolutely focused on a path to God, a mystic is heart-centered, and love is the driving force. Here's the key. A mystic is not aware of being a mystic. If he or she was, then they are not mystics. The true mystic is a discovery of the heart. And so, to me, that is what the title of this book is about, The Mystic Heart. That place that um, we speak of often in this philosophy from platforming classes and so on, um, when we begin to do prayer, I often talk about inviting people to go to that place within, that place within all of us that has never been harmed, that has never been touched, that has never been altered in any way. That is the mystic heart. And I believe that to be the truth about every single person in this room that no matter what we have said or done, no matter what has occurred, no matter what decisions we may or may not have made, that is the truth of us. It is untouched. It is pure. It is perfect. That is the mystic heart. And so then our work, if you will, our practice is to get to that place and to practice getting to that place. Because my mama taught me that practice makes perfect. And practice makes it easier. I had a young woman in my house this week that I've known since she was five. She's now 30. I married her two years ago in an Irish castle. 
I turned over the holiday basically to um, her and her mother and my husband because I still cannot stand for long periods of time. And so I did my favorite thing, is which is to sit in a chair and direct. <laughs> and Hillary had never made a pie before. And she certainly had never made a pie crust before, and she certainly had never rolled out a pie crust. And I told her, I said, no, you can do this. You might take to it right away, and the first one might be a little funky, but you got two more to go, and by the time you're done, it'll be outstanding, and it was. And she was just thrilled. She made three pies. And they looked gorgeous. And they tasted pretty yummy, too. Anyway, so it is about practice. And accessing the mystic heart is also about practice. And this book talks about the mystic heart and raising the hidden knowledge of unity, which, again, we all have. There is something in us that knows. There is something in us that knows that the God in me sees the God in you, or whatever you want to call it. And this is something we can practice, and one of the ways that we can practice this is by looking at other faith traditions and other cultures and other practices. And typically, we are motivated to do this with a sense of unity, with a sense of a longing to seek some common ground. That um, if we can seek some common ground, if we have something that looks the same as someone else, or I believe this, oh, you do too, then we have a place where we can meet. And yet there are differences And rather than not look at or avoid those differences, those can be an even more powerful place where we can meet. When we see the commonalities and the differences, we can see also that in truth there are themes and ideas and even symbols that cross religions, that cross cultures, that have been around for centuries, literally centuries, before Jesus, the master teacher, walked on this planet, one of which is the cross, which we'll get to in a moment. And so we can see that no one owns any of it. There is no one faith tradition that owns the cross. There is no one faith tradition that owns any practice, any spiritual practice at all, that we cross over all the time. And once we see that, then we can maybe create a space where we can have practice interspirituality, which Teasdale named, which we'll talk to and just talk about in just a little bit. So this book challenges us to expand our minds, to expand our hearts, to the possibility that we are all individualized expressions of the same thing. Well, no, that's not a new phrase, is it? We have the technology to do that. The individualized expression in this case might be a religion, a spiritual practice that looks like ours, one that looks different than ours, or not one at all that we would recognize. It doesn't matter. What matters is that there's only one of us here, and that we express that differently, which doesn't negate that there's only one of us here, Something you practice 
might serve me, might assist me in getting closer to my own mystic heart, which I will never know if I am so attached to what my practice looks like that I make yours wrong. Which brings us back to the tapestry again. To the extent that we are so focused on what we consider to be our thread, our part, our identity, our practice, we become so focused and attached to that that we don't see the rest of it. United Centers for Spiritual Living, of which we are a part, is a religious science order that teaches a philosophy called Science of Mind that is based on the writings of Dr. Ernest Holmes. His writings are based on those of Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and lots more. And he was very open about that. He once is quoted as having said that he didn't make this up at all, that he got it from a whole bunch of other people and just kind of condensed it. And United Centers has developed what we call the Global Heart Vision, which says in part that we envision a world that works for everyone. And Wayne Teasdall writes that he envisions a civilization with a heart, which I have said it out loud several times, and every time I do, I get chills down my spine because I can feel what that is like, a civilization with a heart where each one of us recognizes that we are part of a tapestry and that each aspect of it is honored. Each aspect is precious. And there's no one thread that's right and another wrong. See, I don't think a civilization with a heart will concern itself about what your spiritual practice looks like compared to what mine looks like. Or even who you decide to love, who you marry, any of that. A civilization with a heart does not concern itself with that. A civilization with a heart concerns itself with love and seeing the face of God in another. That's a civilization with the heart. In ministerial school, I took, well, many, many classes. One of which, and one of my favorites, was a class on world religions because there were some in there I'd never heard of. And then I took a class on Buddhism and one on Hinduism and one on the Kabbalah, which is the mystic, mystical branch of Judaism. And then, even though I had all my credits and I didn't need it, I took a, a class on Islam for a couple of reasons. One, because given um, the current world, I thought it was on a need-to-know basis and I needed to know. And because I wanted to know. I wanted to know, find out for myself, what that philosophy, what that religion says, which, um, in my opinion, has virtually no relationship to what we are being told that it says and teaches. But that's for another time. And all these religions that I studied um, had some differences and had many more things that were in common, some exactly the same, some beliefs. For example, virtually all the major faiths, with the exception of Buddhism, and, and really that's kind of a, I think it's um, semantics, 
Virtually all teach that there is a creator, that there is, there is an entity, there is something um, that either created everything or because it exists, everything exists as a result of it. Buddhism teaches no thing, which to me feels like the same thing, but that could just be me. That there is a oneness, that there is a unity in all of creation. And the way these religions, philosophies practice these varies. And I think that often we get caught up in the practices and we forget what gives birth to it. Because then we start comparing our practice with your practice and then we decide that mine is right and yours is wrong. The end. I don't know about you, but I don't think that's working out so hot. Not only that, it closes us off to exploring different ways of opening up our own hearts. There might be a spiritual practice. In fact, I know there are now. There might be practices in Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism or whatever. There might be practices there that can lead me closer to where I want to be in my relationship with the divine, but I will never know if I'm attached to mine. I'll never know. And there are religions that have for centuries been crossing over and learning about other faith traditions, not converting, but just using, just exploring, just trying on, you know, how something might work. So the common theme is a creator, a source, a something, called by different names, but the idea is the same. Then another common theme is a prophet or a messiah. Islam and Christianity come to mind. And Hinduism has a whole bunch of deities, a whole bunch, showing up as different forms, different expressions of, of the one. And I was talking this morning about how I was so grateful in ministerial school, we have exit exams, I was so grateful they didn't ask us to name all those. Because <clears throat> even if you put the little statues here, I still, and there's, there's, there's a lot, a lot of them. And then what I found interesting, and I knew this a little bit, but not to this extent, the symbol of the cross is centuries, centuries old. Artifacts dug up in digs way before the master teacher Jesus walked on this planet reveals crosses in all forms, some with things on them, different decorations or whatever on them, but they're all crosses. And they're in different parts of the world. They've been found in India, in Syria, in Persia, which is now Iran, in Egypt. There's an infinite number of examples of these crosses. So the use of the cross as a religious symbol in pre-Christian times is really not debatable. And some have been, they figure, have been used to some form of nature worship, which might freak some people out. I thought it was kind of cool. And lastly, we have heaven or hell, both of which show up in a multitude of religions. Catholicism throws in um, purgatory, that middle one, 
as something that, that they believe in, that assists them in, in their spiritual practices. Again, very similar. There's a lot of crossover. So the things that we have in common, one would think common ground, then assist us in establishing relationship with other faith traditions. The overwhelming thought is that all we need to do is find some common ground, and then we can communicate, then we can sit down, then we can talk about it. Teasdale said that's all well and good. However, we're ignoring a more powerful avenue, which is the conflict part. That to the extent that we can sit down, and it is being done, has been done for centuries, to the extent that we can be present when it gets messy, that can open up all kinds of avenues to the divine. That has been taking place for centuries, as I said. There's historical evidence that it has been in Persia again, in India, uh, in Buddhism. All kinds of places and religions have learned from each other, have met together, have eaten together, have sat together, have prayed together, have dialogued together. At this time, there is something called the Parliament of World Religions. I don't know if some of you may have heard of this or not, because our community spiritual leader, Reverend Dr. Kathy Hearn, attends these. And it is spiritual leaders from all over the world. And they come together and they dialogue. They meet. It's not about an agenda of conversion. They do not come together to change each other's minds. They do not come together to say your religion is right and mine is wrong or vice versa. Obviously, they wouldn't do the former. It is about dialogue. The agenda is just dialogue. So it's just talking, talking together, conversation, interchange, discussion of ideas. And especially when these discussions become open and frank, when they become honest, not as, again, as an agenda to change your mind, but as an agenda to observe, to listen, to hear. And Teasdale offers the view that in dialogue, seeming opposing beliefs can open a way for the divine to reveal itself, which I love. My observation is, after having been on this planet for more than six decades, is that There are huge gifts in the mess. My other observation is that we run like heck when it gets messy. (laughs) I know I did. I've had to learn, I've had to make a commitment to stay in it. Because it's uncomfortable. That's where the gift is. Often that's where the gift is. Teasdale introduces a term called interspirituality, interspirituality, which is what these conferences, these World Parliament of Religion conferences are about. We begin with spirituality, and spirituality is individual. It talks about the individual's journey to the divine. That is something that we do alone. Religion is the expression of that. 
one would hope that it is a bridge to spirituality. My observation is that that is not always the case. It can be. Religion is community, is being in community. Spirituality is individuals. One's own spirituality can be developed wherever, whenever. And it's a solitary journey. It's a journey within. And Teasdale says that religions are valuable carriers of the tradition within a community, but they must not be allowed to choke out the breath of spirit. Religions are supposed to be the vehicle. They're not supposed to be the whole thing. See, we don't need to enter a monastery to be mystics. All of us are. It's the truth of who and what we are. We just need to turn toward it. And again, spirituality and religion are not the same thing. And inter-spirituality is about crossing over. It is about honoring all spiritual paths because there is no one right and no wrong. It's whatever gets us to God. Whatever gets us there. And there is a lot of richness in that tapestry that we can access if we but let go of our own thread and look at the whole picture. So interspirituality is about the sharing of ultimate experiences across traditions, and it implies an openness and a willingness for dialogue. And then the um, we are right and you are wrong melts away. It dissolves. And in its place is me meeting you, wanting to know you. And as those barriers dissolve, I can see me and you and you and me. And all of it is God, or whatever we choose to call it. And what you call it doesn't have to impact what I call it. It is more about wanting to know more about me as expressed through you. And like I said, this interspirituality thing has been going on for a very, very long time, and I have an up-close and personal experience of it. Some of you know that I have four brothers that are all apostolic faith ministers. Apostolic faith is an extremely fundamentalist Christian tradition. And one of my brothers, and he's my favorite one, so I'm not going to tell you his name. <laughs> Which is kind of funny because like, one of my brothers is going to listen to this talk. Probably not. <laughs> but this brother is steeped in this faith and has applied and has been accepted into a program of studying Judaism. <coughs> now, he's not con- considering converting to Judaism. He just wants to know. He just wants to know. So he's still a Christian, but he's drawn to know something about this other faith. Now, I don't know what he's going to do with the information. I don't really care. I think it's a great example of interreligious behavior where we don't have to become so, we don't have to hold ours so tightly that nothing else can get in. Ernest Holmes used to talk about, our founder used to talk about being open at the top. To me, that's what that means. I don't believe for one second that science of mind, which is a philosophy obviously I deeply love, 
it is not a closed container, and it, we don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I'm not done. I want to know more. I want to be more. I want to uncover more. I want to discover more. And I don't think that I'm the exclusive container for all that knowledge. And if I am, I still believe that you can assist me in accessing that. Well, we'll talk. I have been called a bag, but never an answer bag. <clears throat> so my brother is still a Christian, and he's going to be studying Judaism. The Dalai Lama, you all know the Dalai Lama. He's not my brother, but not in, not in, the, not in the physical sense anyway. He apparently has asked his Tibetan lamas to study Christian theology and mysticism. Isn't that awesome? Now, I'm guessing that he's not interested in converting. He's interested in expanding. Maybe he's interested in getting to know his brothers and sisters. I mean, I don't know what his motivation for it is. I think it's a powerful statement. There is a gift in religious diversity when there is a loving willingness to get together and either talk about it or observe it. And yet we sometimes become so attached that there are charges everywhere, and I will tell you one of mine. My father, I recall him growing up, I recall him as being a very virile, very strong, very adamant man, very in touch with the land, uh, very in touch with life in that way. We had animals. And when I was about 11 or 12, I started going to Westside Christian Church in town. In town was six miles away. And the minister started coming out to my house to try to convert my father. And I felt really sorry for him even then. I feel even sorry for him now because my dad was having none of it. And he was pretty outspoken about having none of it. Some time ago, um, stuff happened in my family. And one by one... First a sister, then my mother, then my father, and then more of the family, uh, were all saved. And they all, except for one sister and myself, are in the apostolic faith church. My brother's the pope, and I'm not even kidding. He goes all over the, all over the country, all over the, the uh, world, Africa, wherever, and they throw parades for him. He's the overseer of the apostolic faith church. Anyway, my father was having none of this back then. And then all of a sudden, he is in the Apostolic Faith Church. And I didn't really think that much about it until one visit when I went down to Roseburg to see my parents. They asked me to attend church with them, and I did. Um, I was underwhelmed. <laughs> and I asked where my father was, and my mother said, well, he's downstairs. Well, I guess I thought he'd be downstairs having coffee or something. I didn't know what to expect. And I went downstairs couldn't find him, and opened this one door. And in this room were probably, I don't know, 12 to 15 people kneeling, facing the chairs, with their faces down. So they were prostate. That's what you call it, right? Prostate. That's it, prostate. I knew I was going to screw that up. <laughs> yes. I don't think the prostate was involved, but I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway... I think I would have been more comfortable with that, however, than what I saw. 
<clears throat> which was my father kneeling with his face down in that chair, and it just freaked me out. I got angry. I got, you know, what kind of what kind of deal is this? Why would they make it, you know, nobody was sitting on him making him do that. But that's what he was doing, and he was praying. And it took me years to be okay with that. It's like, what, di- what? so... That's what he was doing. That got him, gets him closer to God. And I was saying this morning, really, I want to get to the point where if you show up in combat boots and a tutu and are dancing to some rap deal and that gets you closer to God, then what's that to me? Really, what difference does that make? Why is that my business? We all need our own ways to get there, and it doesn't have to look the same as everybody else's. Furthermore, maybe I should wear combat boots and a tutu. Maybe that would get me close. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. And that's what this cross-interreligion, interspirituality stuff is about. It's about accessing <clears throat> excuse me, the whole tapestry. There might be something in there some practice, some way of looking at it that will get you, me, closer to where I want to be. And if that's true, why not use it? I will never know if I'm so tightly like this with mine that I can't open it up enough to see something else. What would the world be like if that's how we lived? Right now, this moment... What would the world be like if I did not consider it my job to tell you what to believe, how to believe, how to practice? We fight wars over that. What gets you to God is not my business. However, I want to know how you do it because maybe that will assist me. It doesn't mean I'm going to lay down what I believe, although maybe I would, I don't know. Whatever gets me closer, I want to know about that. He also talks about in this book the idea, again, of conflict as a bridge to understanding, as a bridge to getting closer to where we want to be, and I think that's something for me, anyway, that I'm going to make note of. I'm going to use that. So spirituality is personal. It's a very personal journey. And interspirituality recognizes and honors that journey and respects the idea that that is for you to choose, not me. And I like what the Indian mystic Kabir said, which is, what is inside me moves inside of you. I don't have to know what that looks like. I just have to know that's true. Let us pray. And so in this place, in this space of remembering, I remember there is only one of us. I call it God. And it's everything. It's everyone. It's everywhere all the time. It is changeless. It is perfect. It is absolute love. And it is fully, equally present everywhere, in, through, and as everyone, so that there is no more or less God in one person than another. 
so that each one of us is the perfect expression of that divine. And so that means that divinity is all around us. It is all that there is. And so knowing that, I speak this word for and about everyone in this room, indeed on this planet, affirming and knowing a willingness to embrace the divinity in each other, a willingness to open ourselves up, open our hearts and our minds to want to know, just to want to know, to want to remember, to be willing to try again and again and again, to look into another's eyes, into another's face, and acknowledge that that which moves within me moves within another. So that love is spoken everywhere, and that changes everything and everyone. And in gratitude for knowing that love is all there is, and that means us. In gratitude for knowing that the most powerful power is the law of love. I release this word, knowing that it's done. And with absolute confidence and clarity and expectancy, I let it be. And so it is. Thank you.